And I'm sure uh, you'd find it helpful to turn to James chapter 3, our second reading, page uh, 1214. And hopefully you've got one of these uh, yellowy uh, service uh, sermon outlines too, which will give you some headings. Uh, in July 2007, a study was carried out in which uh, 396 participants uh, wore some sort of voice recorder uh, for seven days. Uh, these machines recorded and then counted how many words were spoken. Uh, the average, which contrary to expectation was the same for men and women. I don't know what you're expecting, but uh, clearly not that. Um, the average was 16,000 words per day, the equivalent of about two hours of solid talking, uh, enough to fill a PhD thesis every week although I doubt anyone would hand me a doctorate for the things I've spoken in the last seven days. But you see, words are important to us. Indeed, the ability to communicate is one of the chief things that separates us from the animals. Oh, I know that some animals can convey uh, rudimentary information, the location of some food, a call for a mate, a warning against danger. Animals can bark, meow, neigh, hiss, squawk and squeak. But there's something unique in our ability to communicate with each other. And the tongue is the tool of our trade. And yet, as our passage in James tells us, our tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Or in Proverbs 12, we see there that the use of the tongue is one of the principal features that distinguishes the wise man from the fool. And I'm sure that we would all know that James chapter 3 verse 8 is true of ourselves. No man can tame the tongue. And yet the remedy for the situation is not for us to keep our mouths shut. This chapter is certainly not telling us that silence is golden. Indeed, to understand uh, how positively James views our speech, we need to see the theological context. See, for James, uh, words are of paramount importance. Why? Well, because God is a speaking God who has chosen to speak to us. Uh, when you think of it, the Bible always portrays God as a God of words. In creation, God speaks, let there be light. And his words have such power that by their very articulation, the universe was brought into being. Or throughout the Old Testament, uh, the repeated refrain is, the word of the Lord came to such and such a prophet. Or in Isaiah 55, we hear that God's word that goes out from his mouth will not return to him empty, but will accomplish what he desires and achieve the purpose which he set for it. And of course, Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation of God, the ultimate fulfilment of God's promise and purpose is uh, summed up at the beginning of John's Gospel as the Word. God is a God of words, uh, words which have purpose and power and which culminate in Christ. Uh, words indeed which have a particular purpose and power in the life of the Christian. So just flick back a page. Uh, to James chapter 1 and verse 18. He, God, chose uh, to give us birth through the word of truth 
that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. It's God's word planted in us that is able to save us. Why are words so important? Uh, Why is speech so important to the human race? Uh, Well, not just because it distinguishes us from a dog or a horse, but primarily because God uses those words to save us. It's why our words are so important for the health of a church. And so James starts as he does in chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Paul isn't trying to keep people out of a career in education. If you're starting a PGCE in September, you don't need to worry. It is teaching within the church, teaching the gospel that he has in mind. And we must be wary. Because you see, the gospel is proclaimed by our most unruly member. The word of God that has such purpose and power has been placed by God on the tip of an untamable tongue. And so if you know what your tongue is capable of, if you know what pain your words have inflicted in the past, then heed the warning of verse 1. I have to say it's an awesome warning for me as a preacher. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. (laughs) If only a perfect man can avoid stumbling in what he says, well then how many apologies must I owe to you? for things that I have misspoken in these past two years, for for my failings to communicate God's word clearly. But of course we don't just teach when we stand in a pulpit. It's the incorrect point made during a small group Bible study. It's the advice to a friend that misapplies God's word and leads people into sin or confirms them in their sin. It's the misrepresentation of Jesus and what it means to follow him when we're talking with an interested unbeliever. Which of us has tamed our tongue in those areas? And if our words have led fellow believers astray, then we will indeed be judged harshly. I'm reminded of Jesus' solemn warning in Mark 8. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Uh, What then is the place of the tongue, that first heading? It's one of great importance. It allows us to speak words, and in particular the word about Jesus Christ, the gospel which when planted in us brings salvation. And yet, because it is so important, there comes this warning about its use. A warning that is made all the more acute when we see the power of the tongue. 
in the verses that follow. Verse 3, have a look at it with me. Now, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. You see, the tongue's influence is out of all proportion with its size. I read this week that the human tongue is four inches long and weighs about two ounces. I couldn't think of a painless way to check. (laughs) And yet it has such power. Like the bit in the mouth of a shire horse that can make a tower of muscle and energy move at the slightest touch on the reins. Or like the rudder of a ship, which, though such a tiny part, can cut a path through the sea. So too the tongue makes great boasts. Of course here James is saying something potentially very positive about the tongue. It could have a great power for good. After all, given the choice of meeting a horse with a bit in its mouth, or a wild horse, I know which I'd go for. Or give me a ship to steer, which I don't recommend. Uh, But if you did, I'd certainly hope that it had a rudder somewhere. See here, surely the point is that the tongue is a key factor in controlled living. I wonder if you've ever thought of that. If you're a Christian here this evening, I take it that you want to live for God. You want your trust in Jesus and his death for you to express itself in obedience. You want to control the powerful forces that are within us and which drive us to sin. Have you ever thought that your tongue is the key? If you want to deal with issues of anger and resentment, or lust, or self-pity, or pride, then James asks us, well, do you control your tongue? It may seem strange, but then isn't it true that all sins require words? Here, I guess the tongue, our words, is much more than what we actually say out loud. We can't think without formulating thoughts in words. We can't plan without describing to ourselves what we intend to do. We we can't imagine without creating a word picture for our mind's eye. We cannot feel self-pity without listening to that inner commentary which tells us how hard done by we are. But if our our tongue was so under control that it refused to formulate those words of self-pity or those words of proud self-exaltation, if it refused to create the images of lustfulness or the thoughts of anger and resentment, then all those sins would be cut down before they had a chance to grow. Your tongue is a bit like a rudder, able to steer the whole body, James says. It is the key to controlled and holy living. And if that's true for us as individuals, then it's also true for the body of the church. A great power for good, and yet for all that potential, the tongue also has a great power for evil. And so James goes on. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, 
sets the whole course of his life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Our tongues, they're so spontaneous, so unruly and so devastating. I cannot call back a word once I say it. Lying, mockery, gossip, slander, boasting, criticising, denigrating, abusing, taunting, insulting, cursing. We're so adept at sinning with our tongues that we have a compendium of of terms to describe it. Maybe you can think back to words said to you years ago which still have the power to hurt and wound when you remember them. Perhaps we can think of times when we spoke rashly and unkindly and caused huge damage to a relationship. Why is the tongue such a powerful evil? Fire waiting to burn and to spread. Well, in verse 6 here, it's because the tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body. It's as though in our tongues we we have a part of our bodies which is, as one commentator puts it, a ready tool at the disposal of the devil. It's as if our tongue doesn't really want to work for us, but instead for Satan. I don't know if you've read the Lord of the Rings trilogy or or seen the films, but I'm reminded of of the ring in it. A ring that despite being in the possession of uh, Frodo the Hobbit, it actually wants to work against him and for the evil Sauron. And so throughout, the ring is treated with great care and dread by those who hold it. When we open our mouths to speak, do we remind ourselves that we are playing the devil's favourite instrument? Verse 6 goes on. The tongue corrupts the whole person, setting the whole course of life on fire. It's the flip side of the point about bits and and rudders. Because just as a controlled tongue is a key to godliness, so a loose tongue will lead us into greater and greater ungodliness. As any and every sin is given fuel for the fire. So having seen the important place of the tongue and the immense power of the tongue, both for good and evil, uh, we then come to the problem of the tongue. And the problem of our tongue is its inconsistency. Verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. (laughs) The problem of our tongues is that if we're Christians, uh, one minute we're using them to praise and bless the Lord, 
And next we're using them to curse the image of God. We look at our Lord and our awareness of his greatness and his love for us, shown supremely at the cross. And we do want to praise and honour him. Over a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, we sometimes sing. Well, thank goodness I only have one. Because then I look at my brothers and sisters and I think nothing of using that same tongue for defaming or criticising or making sly comments. These things ought not to be. And it is shame on us as a church that they so often are. Uh, The problem of inconsistency like this is a big theme throughout James. And it is deadly. In verses 11 and 12 where it talks about salt and fresh water, the point seems to be that it is the evil use of our tongues that will prevail and infect everything. If you mix salt water and plain water, it's not a nice drink. So too, words that are a mix of blessing and curse will leave a bitter taste in our lives and the life of the church. And so then finally we come to the proper use of our tongues. And the first thing to note is that we can't hope to achieve it ourselves. Verse 8 is correct. No man can tame the tongue. James chapter 3 is not telling us to pull ourselves together. Because we can't. You see, the inconsistency of our tongue really points to the inconsistency that lies in our hearts. I think today a doctor might still ask you to stick your tongue out uh, so that they can look and see how healthy your whole body is. Well, so too, the sin that comes from our tongue points to the sin that lurks in each of our hearts. We have a heart problem, and so it requires heart medicine, the gospel. That implanted word, which points us to Jesus as the one who, though perfect himself, has borne our sin on himself when he died on the cross. We can't tame the tongue, but we can trust the God who can. A God who can tame tongues through the work of the Holy Spirit as he plants that life-giving word in our hearts and then applies it to the whole of life and puts it in our mouths so that the God who saves us invites us to speak to and about him. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, verse 9. That is its proper use. And it is only when we return to the gospel in our hearts and minds, when we replace our trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, when we reaffirm our commitment and desire to follow him as Lord, in his strength, that is when our tongues will fulfill their potential for great good, both to those to whom we speak and to ourselves as the tongue brings the whole course of life into check. You have 16,000 words at your disposal in the next 24 hours. Over 100,000 by next week. How will we use them? 
Will it be the gospel that is on our lips and thus directing our lives? And remember, that's going to look much more varied than just if we're uh, reading the Bible or going through two ways to live with a friend. No, instead it is when we apply the gospel to any and every area of our lives. Letting the gospel infuse our thoughts, our worldview and our speech. Does it do that for you as a Christian? A few years ago now I was a geologist and that's what I'd studied at university. I can remember my first ever geology lecture or at least I can remember the start of it. I had a bit of a habit of uh, falling asleep in the middle of lectures, Uh, so if I see any of you nodding off now, then I will sympathise, if not forgive. Um, Anyway, in my first ever geology lecture, uh, the professor got up and said that by the end of university life, life would never be the same again for us, because rocks are everywhere. And so no matter what you're doing, as a geologist, your eye gets drawn to look at the things around you. And it's true, one day I might be getting money out of a cash machine, but actually I'm trying to work out what sort of granite they've used as the surround. Or in a museum, I could be looking at a great sculpture, but actually I'm looking at the tiny little fossils that are in the rock that it was made out of. Being a geologist can affect... Lots of things, even the little things that aren't geological at all, like getting money out of a machine or being in a museum. Uh, The same is true, but much more so, for the Christian. Uh, Once we're converted, once the gospel takes root in our lives, nothing is the same again. You see, knowing the gospel should change the way we view everything else. Swine flu, the start of the football season the end of the ashes, my summer holiday, exam results, a film watched at the cinema, or cancer. When I speak about any of those, my perspective and understanding of them and my attitude toward them must be different from the world if I am a Christian. And so let me show it in what I say. 16,000 words. And that's just until tomorrow night. Let us be wise in what we say. Uh, We're not going to spend time looking at it now, but uh, on the back of the handout you'll see some of the practical lessons from Proverbs about wisdom in speech. But the thing is to come back to the cross, to the word of the gospel implanted in us, and to let that implanted word flow out from our mouths so that we exclude innuendo or vanity or exaggeration or point scoring or spite or anger and all those things that come from the fire of hell and instead speak only what is encouraging, building one another up, particularly by speaking of God to one another. If we do that, then what powerful good would be unleashed to be at work among us. Let's pray together. Let me pray Psalm 141, verse 3 for us. 
Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Loving Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that you have implanted your word in us. Thank you that in yourself you have given us someone to praise and bless. Help us not to be inconsistent, but to let the gospel thrill our hearts and fill our speech so that we are brought on into maturity and so that together we build up your church for your glory. Amen.